it's good to see this uh, this many folks here. We have had lots and lots of sick people, and and um, uh, Pastor Eric, in fact, is at home now, and I know he he covets your prayers for his his recovery. And we weren't sure that Tanya and I were going to make it this morning either. We we've kind of had this respiratory mess this week, but uh, the Lord has been uh, gracious to us, and uh, you're stuck with me. Here you here you are. Uh, we're in we're in First Samuel chapter seventeen. First Samuel chapter seventeen, long chapter. So uh, since we don't have two services, we'll just have. <laughs> you know, it's funny too. I was talking to somebody before the service started. We've been eating for like a week, you know, and everybody's been eating leftovers, and and uh, you know, uh, I think there's gonna be temptations, you know, today for the eyes to get heavy. Mine were kind of heavy before before the service started, so I may fall asleep on you. I don't know. It's a, be bad, but uh, I, I want to speak on this topic today. Uh, defending the honor of the Lord. Defending the honor of the Lord. And uh, I know this is a very familiar passage, uh, certainly for those of us who have been to church a little while. Um, so let's just, uh, let's just dive in here and, and, uh, and see what the, what the Lord has for us. Um, obviously we won't be able to do verse-by-verse uh, verse exposition of this, but we'll hopefully look at the, uh, the major theme, the major theme, defending the honor of the Lord. You know, there was a time when a, when a good name was important to people. There was a time, I think, when, when people were willing to, to fight, um, uh, to defend a name, um, to defend a reputation, certainly of that of your family or your wife or your children or something like that. Of course, with men, it seems to always kind of get confused, doesn't it? And becomes a, a defense of something usually not worth defending. Yeah. But, but I want to tell you this, even, even as we get started in this, there is a name worth defending. Mm. There is a reputation, a glory worth defending, and that is the glory, the name, the honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes. Amen? Yes. Yeah. The Apostle Paul said, for the sake of this name, he had suffered the loss of all things. Suffered the loss of his own reputation, his own position in Judaism, his, his own uh, status as a, as a Hebrew, his education, his family, heritage. None of it mattered in light of Jesus Christ. His name and fame are of little consequence in comparison with Jesus. I don't know whether we can all say that. Christ Jesus' name is a name above every name. Amen? It is a glory above all glories. The honor of the King of kings and the Lord of lords is of the greatest importance. And I want to ask you, as we, as we get started in this uh, this morning, and really, really starting a new, new, new year, does that matter to you? I'm, 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 I mean, does it matter to you? Do you care about that? Is it something that you think about uh, in, your, in your daily practice, the honor of God, the, the, the glory of God, defending God, speaking of Him, you know, um, in a world in which we live? Do you care? Men like Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they, they cared. Uh, they cared so much that they were willing to suffer death in a fiery furnace. You may prefer um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We may know them by those names a little bit better. Supposing that the honor of God was more valuable than their own life, here's what they said. He said, our God is able to rescue us, but even if He doesn't, He said, let it be known to you. Right? Remember, they wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Let it be known to you. In other words, let it be known that our, our lives are less valuable than the honor, the glory of God. We will not serve your gods. We will not bow down to your image. That's what they said. Let me ask you, what, what are you willing to die for? 
What is it that drives you to take a stand for something? How can... And, and I, let me just kind of frame this for you as believers. How, how can we, who are the recipients of God's life-giving grace, we, we who are lost and have now been found, we who are dead in our sins and now been made alive through Christ, we who are sold into slavery to sin and now been bought with a price, we who were children of wrath, now children of God. Our, our, our King, our King Jesus gave His life to purchase ours. He died that we might live, that we might be forgiven of all of our sins. How can we not live and die for His honor, His name and His fame? So what is it that you're willing to do to defend the honor of Jesus? His name and fame are of, of the greatest importance. Listen, it's why you were created, by the way, and, and certainly why you were saved. God, and, and I want to say this too, God doesn't need us to defend Him. You understand that? He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us in any way. He doesn't need us to defend Him. But God has chosen you as a means of grace in this world to reflect His glory. He's chosen you as a means of grace to defend His name, to defend His honor. I mean, what Jesus said, what? You're, you're, you're salt of the earth. You're, you're, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You are a means of grace to defend His name. And so although God doesn't need us, He has chosen us to, to do these things, to honor Him, to glorify Him. This coming year, I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's even worth planning for, my friends. It's worth all of our resolve to defend, to promote, to live, and to die for His honor, His glory, His reputation. That is the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And the Bible certainly clearly teaches this all through the Scripture. I mean, in our text, David seems to think that risking everything is worth it to defend the honor of God. Amen? I mean, this is a very familiar passage. And, and, and anyone who's been in a Sunday school class or been in church for very long has, has, has heard this story. You're certainly familiar with it. And, there, and there's been a many, many lively telling of the story. And I'll, and I'll leave that to people who are much more creative than I am to, to tell a, a lively telling of it. I, I want us to look more at how the story instructs us. How the story teaches us. What, what does it say to us? What, what, do we, what can we learn from it? And I think we always have to be careful about how we think about familiar stories in the Scripture. To be careful about making assumptions and making, making application too quickly. It's, it's, it's familiar, uh, we, we know about it, and, and so you know, we can kind of tune out a little bit, or we can just make, simply make a quick application of it. If we're not care, careful, because it's so familiar, we, we, can, we can put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Do you understand? We can, we can, we can give the wrong emphasis to the story. All the, we can emphasize all the wrong things there. And, and this is not a story, by the way, of facing your Goliaths in life. Although I've heard that. You know, it's, you know the, how do we face the bully at school? How do, we, how do we face the boss at work? You know, the oppressive government, the preoccupation with our poor self-esteem or something like that. That's not, it's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. Uh, let me teach you a word. It's called hermeneutics. It's and, and and if you're familiar with it, uh, good for you. If you're not, it just simply means uh, this: the study of interpretation, how you how you interpret scripture. And if I could help you a little bit in, in this, look for in any passage of scripture, look for what the text says about God. Yeah. Since the Bible is all about Him, yeah. it, it's a safe place to land when you're looking at any text of scripture. What does it have to say about 
God. That's where the emphasis, the emphasis ought to fall, right? Yes. And sometimes look for key words or repeated words that say something about God. Yeah. In this case, words that say something against God. The word uh, to mock, for example, is used some six times in this text, or some form of the word to mock. Right? We see that six times in the text. If you see something like that, it seems to be important. God is highlighting it. This brute from Gath is mocking God. That seems to be pretty important for understanding what the author wants us to understand. Goliath is not just another big mouth from Philistia, right? He's a big guy with a big mouth dishonoring Israel's God. That's important. So don't lose sight of God in the text of Scripture. There's a danger, I think, to, to focus too much on David, that David's courage, right? Da- David's, David's faith, David's slingshot accuracy, whatever the case may be. Uh, we can pay attention to David in this respect, that all this instruction, all this grace comes to us through the means of the servant of Jehovah. So, so let's see what David has to teach us about God today, alright? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this, uh, this Word, and uh, I pray that, Father, You, by Your Spirit, would instruct us. Um, Lord, I need Your help. My voice is weak, so I pray that, Lord, in the weakness of my voice, You would, Lord, display Your great strength. God, You are good, and You do good. Open our eyes, reveal great truths from Your law. And, uh, Lord, I, I pray specifically that you would help us to think about how, how we're going to, to honor you. Lord, not just today, but in the coming days. If, if you tarry, if you decide in your good sovereignty to leave us here, I, I pray that, Lord, you would help us to think about it day by day, whether it be at work or home or school, that we would think about, Lord, how it is that we're going to honor you before an unbelieving world. Um, And show us, Lord, in Scripture how important this is to You. How Your name and Your fame is more important than anybody else's name, anybody else's fame, more than David's, more than mine, more than all of us, Lord. Your name, Your fame, Your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so let me give you a setting, and then we'll talk about two of the characters, two of the main characters here in the text. Uh, really, the exposition is going to start in verse 26, but let me just kind of summarize this. We've read it. We won't read the whole chapter again. Uh, Brother Jonathan, thank you for, for doing that. I know that was a long, long uh, reading. But this, the story takes place 13 miles west of Bethlehem, what's set in the Valley of Elah. And the author takes a lot of time to introduce us to the characters, particularly two characters. That is Goliath and David. And so let's start with one he starts with, Goliath. Goliath, listen, is an impressive portion of masculinity, is he not? I mean, he's, he's a big dude. The writer makes sure we notice him. His size, his armor, his weapons. I mean, you can't miss a guy who's over nine feet, six inches tall, right? Uh, I mean, and and he has this 126 pounds of armor that he wears. This is the big dude. A a spear whose head weighs an astounding 15 to 16 pounds. I mean, he's without a doubt a man to take notice of. Even without his hairy-chested speeches, you, you couldn't have walked by this fella without noticing him for a moment, right? Without taking a look, another glance, you know, up at him. That, that, that's the kind of guy he would have been. Uh, this, was, this, was, uh, this was Goliath. The author wants us to make sure the reader knows this. I mean, he is a force to be reckoned with. And then you have verses 8 to 10. Let's read these together. Verses 8 to 10. 
He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. This is Goliath. Why have you come out to draw up battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me if he is able to fight with me and kill me. Then he will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And we'll pause right there for just a second. I wish I could do a better Goliath voice, but uh, there, there it is. We need somebody with a really deep voice, don't we? Where's Jerry Cowden when we need him? Where's your dad? He could, he, I, think he, I think he could do that. Anyway, I mean, listen, there, there's nothing worse than a big fella with a loud mouth who can usually back it up. This is him. Yeah. I mean, he has almost everyone in Philistia and Israel totally convinced. Nobody's going to beat him, right? He calls for anyone in Israel to challenge him. And so both Saul and Israel are impressed and oppressed. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. But we learned something, didn't we? Back there in chapter 16, verse 7, about appearances. Remember that? Chapter 16, verse 7, about appearances. Listen to this. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. You remember that? Where does God look? God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. And I think that applies to kings and enemies. Goliath is going to prove God's word to be true again. <laughs> then, and then we learn something about David. I mean, what, what a contrast from Goliath in verses 12 to 23. And we come to verse 12, and I, and I think there's a bit of relief there when you come to verse 12. I hope there is. Uh, I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've gone through 11 verses there, and it's, it's kind of been tense, hasn't it, in those first 11 verses. Uh, there, there's a lot of tension there in those first 11 verses. The armored supervillain from Philistia. And you listen to his words, and you see Saul, and you see all of Israel. And what are they, what are they doing? They're looking for the panic button, right? They're, they're, they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? And then you read in verse 12, now David. And, and, it's, and, it, and it ought to feel for the believer who knows anything about the story, who knows anything about God, who already knows a little bit about David from the, from the previous chapters, there's like, okay, maybe there's some hope. And then the now Davids continue. Now David in verse 12. Now David in verse 14. Now David in verse 15. And we follow David all the way to the battlefield, don't we? <laughs> all the way to the battlefield. <laughs> They just keep coming. I think there is a relief for us there when we see that now David. Hmm. Hmm. We get to follow David all the way to the battlefield and you hear, hear about grain and bread and cheese. <laughs> Where Goliath seems very big and everything about him is big, David seems very small in, in, in comparison to Goliath, doesn't he? David's journey seems small and insignificant. It seems all very subtle, all very matter-of-fact, and all very providential. <laughs> and Jesse has no clue about how important cheese and bread is going to be to the mission of God. I mean, who would think about it? I mean, isn't that how usually God how God how how God usually works in our own lives? I mean, very ordinary circumstances, very very everyday kind of moments, and just you know, kind of everyday minutes that lead to lead us to these to these moments. Where, where we get to choose what we're going to do to honor the Lord. Those, those sobering moments of life. You know, all the little everyday kind of things where God leads into this, this moment where we have this chance to do something for God. 
to speak on His behalf, to, to, to interject a truth in the midst of lies, to, to, to speak and, and, and say something that's going to impact people for eternity. Isn't that the way God normally does? The most serious moments in life where we have to decide what we're willing to do to honor God in the moment. Then Goliath mocked one too many times, and David heard him. <laughs> this little shepherd youth from, from uh, the hill country around Bethlehem there heard him. And of course you know the rest. Now that's the first, uh, first verses, and those are the characters, Goliath and David. Now, don't forget to worship before we go any further. Don't forget. Remember, God, God, is, God is rescuing His people. God is, God is providentially working these, th- working these things out, orchestrating thing, these things for His own glory. Let, let's take time to worship God in the moment before we go any further. Don't forget, I, I, again, before we proceed to worship Him, God again is providing for His people and bringing all of it through this quiet providence. Now back there in chapter 13 and chapter 14, Jonathan seemed to be the only believer in Israel. And certainly here David kind of fills that role. So, so even as we hear from David, we want to keep the honor of Jehovah as the driving theme of this chapter. So, so let's follow, if we can, David on his journey here and see what David has to teach us. So I just want to highlight four things. Uh, four highlights of David's journey in chapter 17. And the first one is David's theological teaching. David's theological teaching. And let's pick it up there in verse 26. And when David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Here is the first theological note in the text. I hope you notice it. And the first time, really, we hear David speak anywhere in Scripture. Did, did you know that? It's the first time we ever hear him. Not that David didn't speak before this, but this first time we know that he speaks. Up to this point, David has been a sort of a, a literary mute. But now, at this important moment in Israel's history, David speaks up. Now, we know people who talk nonstop, right? Uh, don't point fingers. <clears throat> Some of you are looking really hard at me. We know people that make comments on things that don't need to be commented on, right? We, they usually talk so much that we learn not to, to pay attention to them so much. But, but then you have folks that you know that, that really don't have a lot to say most of the times. Not that they're particularly shy, they're just mostly pensive. So that when they do speak, what do we do? We tend to listen. Yes. We tend to listen very carefully because they've probably chosen their words carefully. That They're usually weighty words. David's words, I think, are, are, are like that. They're, they're full, they're rich, they're valuable words. They're, they're bigger and weightier than Goliath. David's literary silence is broken. And he brings a whole new worldview to the situation. <laughs> to this point, the worldview of Israel has been godless. Did you hear me? It's been a godless worldview. I mean, pay attention because how many times have we faced what appeared to be a hopeless situation with a godless worldview? Can we just be honest and say, yeah, we're, we're, we're there. But now David comes with a, with a godly word, a question that speaks, I think, volumes about the state of Israel and about the reality of God in the situation. Israel is, in one sense, practically atheistic. Yes. I mean, they, yes. they may say that we're, we're, uh, we're servants of God, we're the people of God, but in practice, they're atheists. 
Their king has rejected God. The people aren't thinking about God, but David is thinking about God. God is at the center of his thoughts. He calls him, look at there in the text, he calls him the living God. Did you notice that? The living God. David's God stands in contrast to the dead gods of Canaan. The, the impotent gods that are dependent on man to feed them and care for them and maintain them. Maintain them. Jehovah is not like that. He's not like Dagon of the Philistines. He's, he's not like Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, one of the other cities of, of, the, of the Philistines. And let me ask you this. Does having a living God make a difference in this situation? Well, David believes so. <laughs> this goon from Gath has mocked the ranks of the living God. Do you expect a living God to be indifferent about his reputation? A dead God may not care, but a living God surely does care. Do you expect a living God to let His name be trampled by an uncircumcised oaf? The answer is no. Yeah. Israel thought Goliath to be bulletproof, but David simply saw him as uncircumcised. Listen to that. He saw, he saw, he saw him for who he was. Separated from the covenant people of God. That's what uncircumcised means. He's an outsider. He's not one of God's people. And he's defying the ranks of the living God. This is how David, this is David's perspective. This is a whole new worldview for Israel. A whole new worldview. David simply saw him as uncircumcised. Because David had in view the living God, he could view everything and everyone else properly. Do you understand? Yeah. A living God gives us a whole new perspective on the situation. Now, now, knowing this doesn't solve every problem for every situation, but it does make a difference for a starting point, doesn't it? <laughs> it makes all the difference when the reputation of the living God is at stake, when His name is dishonored. It's the starting point for us to view everything and everyone else rightly. Surely this instructs us as a church, right? Surely this teaches us something. To think about life from the right perspective. I mean, all of life requires, are you ready for this? Theocentric thinking. God-centered thinking. All of life requires it. I mean, we can get caught up in our fears and our, our anxieties and become very, very myopic. That is, all you can see is your pain, all you can see is your difficulty, all you can see is your trial. But listen, as Christians and believers, we have to have this kind of worldview, right? If we're going to view everything else rightly, everyone else and everything else rightly, we have to have this kind of theocentric, God-centered thinking. Mm. Mm. If you listen to the words of some professing believers about their troubles and dangers, you would never guess that they serve a living God. You would hardly know that their God exists at all. Listen, we, we must remember the honor of the living God is at stake. David served and we serve a living God and that should make all the difference, both for David and for us. This is a proper worldview. This is, this is what David is clearly teaching, right? There's a second highlight I want you to see, and this is found in verses, really, in verses 34 to 37. And that is not only David's, David's teaching there, but, but David's, David's confident trust. David's confident trust. Look there at verses 34 to 37. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pick up some of this uh, in just a moment. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went and after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Wow. Um, 
I wish I, wish I had him in Africa with me, but verse 36, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. There it is again. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. How did David have such a, a view of God, that idea of God as living God? How did he have this sort of confident trust? But before we get to that, we have to listen to Eliab. Do you remember Eliab, the older brother? Remember that older brother of David, the, the first and most certainly visually qualified or rejected yeah. brother? Remember that? Uh, I like what one commentator said. He's going to vent his spleen on David in typical older brother fashion. I like that. Verse 28. Let me just read verse 28 for you. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. That's Eliab. The typical older brother. If you're an older brother, I apologize ahead of time. <laughs> uh, here, here's, here, here is, I think, a, a, another sort of obstacle to David's faith. Uh, I mean, he breathes disdain for David, doesn't he? His older brother. I mean, like, like, like Goliath will. I mean, even before he has to face the giant, David already has to face challenges to his faith. The challenge of his older brother's so-called omniscience to his own heart. You need to be with those sheep. You just want to come down here and watch the battle. It's only the experienced warriors that need to be here, like him, who knows how much battle Eliab had had. We're learning, aren't we, that especially in the Old Testament passages, we're learning that faith often arises when there doesn't seem to be much reason for it. Because we also know that it's a gift from God, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Then he's brought before Saul in verses 31 to, to 40. And he has this conversation with, with Saul. And What is it that gives David this confident trust in God? We read verses 34 to 37. And there it is. The secret that only David has known till now. <laughs> David explains what sheep have to do with Philistine giants, doesn't he? <laughs> A shepherd in those days and in that part of the world lived in danger both of his own life and in the life of his sheep. It was not unusual for a bear or a lion to take a sheep. And David said that when that happened, he would go after it. I don't recommend this for anyone, but David, David would go after it. And he would strike it and he would make it let go of that sheep. And if it turned on him, he would take hold of it and strike it till he killed it, he said. Wow. David doesn't, I don't think, I mean, it doesn't appear to be bragging. I mean, he's just simply stating the facts. Here's what a shepherd does. Here's, here's what, I, what I did. He had some experience at fighting. Not arrogant giants, but, but fearsome mammals, right? In fact, that, that's just a part of the job of shepherding. And this Philistine has now been marked for the bear and the lion heap, he says. Because he has mocked the ranks of of the living God. Now here's the, here's the theology of verse 36. Here's the theology. Here, here's what's behind the belief. Here, here's why David has a confident trust in Jehovah. David is, David is saying that the reason I, I have been successful with the lion and the bear and the reason I am going to prevail against this boasting giant is not because I'm skilled, is not because I'm clever, not because I'm brave, but because Jehovah will deliver me. That's the theology. 
That's the, that's the doctrine. That's, that's the thinking. That's the understanding. Looking back in confidence allowed him to look forward with even more confidence. What God did in the wilderness, He will do in the valley of Elah. That's what David's saying. That's the, that's the thinking. Listen, listen, I think this is powerful instruction for the church. Powerful, powerful instruction. Our confidence in the present is built and sustained around the memories of God's grace in the past. All of it. Listen, when did Christ die? In the past. <laughs> and, and how has it affected our, our present and our future? All oh, forever, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the rich history of God's past goodness leads us to be confident that God will act and sustain us in the present and in the future. Memory and logic are working to build faith. I mean, this is a Romans 8.32 kind of trust. Who, who, he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, that's past. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's present and future. <laughs> this is why exercises like the Lord's table are so valuable for building our own trust in God. Right? That memorial table, the, the body, the blood of Jesus, where we remember the body and the blood of Jesus regularly. God knows that we're forgetful. He will deliver me, David said. Why? Because he has delivered me, David says. David will be delivered not because he has true determination, but because he knows the true God. Circumstances may change, but the Lord stays the same, whether among the sheep or among the Philistines. The Old Testament, I think, I think this is why it's so wonderful that we get a chance to study the Old Testament. Why? Because these are our examples. These are the, this is the history of God's grace, the history of His saving and delivering and preserving His people throughout history. The, Paul, Paul said that to the Corinthians. These were written as our examples. And this is why I think, and this sounds so simplistic, but listen, it, it is. This is why I think daily Bible reading and daily, um, daily Bible memorization is so helpful for us. It, it, it sounds so, so, so simple, you know, go and read these two verses and everything will be better in the morning, right? That's not, I know that's not what it means, but, but listen, it, it, is, it is a healthy exercise because what does it do? It stirs our memory, stirs our memory of God's grace to sustain us in the present and the future. Again, Bible reading and memorization, as simple as that sounds, is still, I think, one of the greatest exercises for building trust in God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of Christ. Be reminded, you'll need it in the future. Christians with weak faith usually have bad memories. That's just the way it is. Number three, let me highlight one third, a third thing here. David's divine triumph. I say a divine triumph, not because David's divine, but he's trusting in one who is. Verses 41 to 54, we won't read all of that, but I'll read sections of it here. We finally get to the big battle. Are you ready for it? Only there's not much of it. <laughs> it's, it's not a very big battle, isn't it? At least not a very long battle. <laughs> Now, note how the author gives Goliath time to dominate the scene from verses 41 and following. Let me, let me pick that up there for Goliath. I know Goliath would want it that way. So let me, uh, let me pick it up here in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward. 
And he came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and, and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And we'll pause there. Wow. He mentions here the Philistine went, the Philistine looked, the Philistine said, the Philistine cursed, and then the Philistine said again. The writer wants you again to notice the giant. (laughs) Everyone in the story, I mean, even the reader, if you didn't know God and you didn't know the end of the story, even the reader, I think, would be trembling by now. This is a pretty pretty intimidating guy, isn't he? Goliath was used to this kind of attention, and I think he would want this kind of attention here. He's probably, wherever he is, would be excited he gets some attention. But, But then make note of David in verse 45 and following. Make note of David. Um, David has some pretty cool lines too. Verse, verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, that is Yahweh, or Jehovah of hosts, that is the God of the armies, God of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And You know, he said this before he had a sword in his hand. Yeah. Just, just so you know. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth, listen to this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and, 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 and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. David's divine triumph. Again, we finally get to the big battle and it's not a very big battle. Goliath has some words, but David has some good words too, <laughs> doesn't he? I mean, he has his own speech. 63 words. Then the battle is described in only 36 words. I mean, it's a little anticlimactic. We would say a first-round knockout, early first-round <laughs> knockout, right? Sling and a stone. Now, we don't, want to dis- we don't want to discredit the sling and stone. It was probably a stone, probably two to three inches in diameter. Someone who was really skilled in it, uh, from what I've read, uh, could toss that thing with that kind of sling some 100 to 150 miles per hour, which uh, would have certainly made a dent. It was a stunning victory. Oh. Oh. A complete triumph for David and the Lord. Now back to David's speech. It, it, it is theologically loaded, folks. M- much like the other speeches of David. Listen, listen to David and, and you'll understand the triumph there in verses 45 to 47. Da- David can match Goliath for pointed speeches, can he? I mean, he can talk about bird food as well as the big giant, can he? Yeah. I mean, why should all the, all the good speeches be left to the uncircumcised Philistines? So, so there it is. And David boasts that tomorrow at this time the news will spread that there is a God in Israel. Everyone will hear about the headless giant and about the shepherd from Bethlehem and how God, uh, the God of Israel, saves. That's it. That's it. The God of armies will show Goliath and Philistia what puny powers they serve as gods. Remember, Goliath cursed David by his gods. God saves by the weakness of His servants. I mean, how humiliating it was. This was Philistia's best. Yes. And, and everybody would have looked at David and said, no, if we're going to send anybody, don't send him. You know, he's, he's the youngest of these, all these brothers. I mean, Eliab seems much more qualified to do this. Saul seems much more qualified to do this. Don't send David. 
How humiliating this was that their champion, their gods, were humiliated by this shepherd boy from Bethlehem. David the youth, the one who couldn't even wear the armor, the shepherd, the youngest brother of Eliab, took their champion down with a single stone. Yeah. I mean, he even had to borrow a sword. He didn't even ask Goliath for permission. He just took the thing. And God gave him victory. Victory through what the watching world thought was weakness. And boy, I think this has been a theme too. It's been a theme building, I think, through through the, the first part of this, this chapter. Uh, all the important people think David weak. If I can summarize and go back through some of those people. You remember Eliab? He certainly thought David shouldn't have been there. Right? Um, if we could paraphrase Eliab, you're a pain. If we could paraphrase Saul, you're green. If we could paraphrase Goliath, you're puny. I mean, everybody thought David shouldn't have been there. He was by all the world standards weak. But this is the one the Lord chose to deliver His people and defend His honor. David didn't even have the right weapons. Again, he didn't have the right armor. He didn't have the sword. I mean, he had a staff. David called it, what, a stick? Am I a dog that you come to me with a stick? But the Lord delivers without the symbols of man's strength. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, you see what matters is not whether you have the right equipment, but whether you have the right God. And not that everyone approves of you, but that you're approved of God. Your inadequacy may be the very thing that qualifies you to be a servant of God. His strength is made perfect in weakness, Paul said. His, his strength shines brightest when we are at our dullest, we could say it that way. And this is true not only for David with a giant, but for you as a believer as, as well. I mean, just think about some of the, the people that we, that we met back in the book of Judges and even earlier. I mean, Gideon. Think about Gideon for a moment. I mean, where, where do we meet Gideon? He's hiding from the Midianites. Yeah. Remember that? He's hiding. And, and of course, and of course even, even after God tells him what he's going to do and how he's going to do it and do it through him, he has to have all these, these proofs and tests and everything else. And yet God used him and a, and a great victory came as a result. I mean, Moses. I mean, think about Moses. He was, uh, he was a tremendous leader of God's people, but he made a lot of excuses too. He was certainly a murderer. We know that from his past. He, he made excuses about his tongue, you know, something, something in his speech that he was unable to do these things. And yet God used him to deliver his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Even David here, the world would have certainly called him weak. God worked great victories through these weak men. And can we not agree that also David's greater son, Jesus, he became weak, right? As as the world would call weak. Purposely weak. But there was a grace that sustained him, a grace and power that bore him to the cross until his redemptive work was done, until he had accomplished his victory over sin. I can say that's the way God most often works through us, through our weakness. Why? Because He gets the glory. He gets the honor, and that's the idea. There's one more thing I want to highlight before we close, and that is David's consuming thought. David's consuming thought. And it kind of just runs throughout the entire chapter. This consuming thought of David has been, I think, the primary theme of the whole chapter. Goliath has been mocking Israel, and by connection, mocking Israel's God. And David seems to be the only one in Israel concerned to turn away this mocking, right? David believes that to mock Israel is to mock Israel's God. David defends this with Saul, verse 36. Um, he says, he says um, 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And then with Goliath in verse 45, he says, he says uh, Then David said to the Philistine, You come, with me, uh, come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This consuming thought of David in this chapter is the honor of the Lord, his reputation, his glory. David is driven by a passion for defending the honor of God. Not that God, again, needed any help defending himself. Remember, it was through David's weakness that, that uh, God gave him victory. And David's already confessed this, hasn't he? He who saved me from the bear and the lion. Who saved David from the bear and the lion? God did. He who saved me from the bear and the lion will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Even David acknowledges that the victory, if it's going to come, is going to come from the Lord. God didn't owe him anything. God, I, I think if we, if we read this correctly, God has designed this whole scenario to preserve the glory for Himself. Be careful not to focus on David too much. Only that we can share in David's consuming thought that is a passion for the honor of God. David was greatly concerned with the honor of the Lord. It mattered to him what people said about God. It mattered enough for him to risk everything to defend God's honor. Let me ask you this as we close today. Can you say that? Does it matter to you what people say about God? How the world thinks about God? Is that your consuming thought? What are some scenarios in your life or your work or your home where the honor of Christ is at stake? I mean, does it matter to you? Does it matter enough for you to act, to risk your own reputation, your own safety, your own security? I think we're more, um, we're my, we're more likely to have... Excuse me, let me, let me say it this way. We're probably not going to um, face a situation where all Philistia and, and uh, Israel are watching us. You know, you know, I mean, we're not going to face a giant like David did. But, but an unbelieving world is watching you. They are watching you. And it does matter what you say and how you act and when you say it and when you act. And, I, and, we, and we really need to trust the Lord when to, when to do those things. I have a pastor friend of mine who was um, doing some premarital counseling some, some years ago. And, he, and he, these weren't members of his church. It was a young couple that were related to some people in his church. This is this, some, some of you pastors that are here can relate to these situations. But they weren't members of the church, but they were, they were family members of some members of the church. And so he sat down with them and started talking to him. Well, come to find out the young man wasn't a Christian. He was, in, he was involved in a, a cult, a sort of a oneness, weird oneness Pentecostalism, like that of like T.D. Jakes or, or, or um, um, something like that. And, and he... he, he he described uh, what he called patripassionism, which yeah. is which is where the Father suffered on the cross for our sins, because you know obviously it's a denial of the Trinity, right. oneness Pentecostalism. And so as he talked to them, he realized this guy's not even a believer. And of course, the young lady wasn't sure about her, but at least she claimed to be a believer and had an orthodox understanding of of Christianity. And so as he went on in the in the counseling, he had to tell them, "Listen, I, I'm sorry, I can't I can't do the ceremony because I would be joining an unbeliever to a professing believer." And um, 
they were obviously they were angry they were upset you know they were they had expectations and all those kinds of things and uh, there were a lot of people upset in his church and uh, some people actually left the church because of it yeah because of because of that but I was glad I was glad to, to hear that I was glad to hear that the pastor believed the honor of God was more important than a large church where everybody loves him If you are a believer, listen, you're going to face situations where you have to choose between your comfort or the honor of God. And, and the reality is you may lose some friends over it. I was thinking about uh, situations like sinning church members. I mean, how many, how many of you are willing to, to go to your brother or sister in Christ and you know they're trapped in, in, in a sin and pull them aside quietly and tell them, listen, uh, you, you can't do that. It dishonors God. It, it affects the purity of this church and the, and the glory of God. You can't do that. How many people are willing to do that? I, I don't know. I don't know uh, here, but I know in most churches that um, many people are not, not willing to do that. How about at work? Hearing someone over and over and over again take the Lord's name in vain. And, and you tell them, say, listen, it doesn't matter if you defame my name, but that's the name of my Lord. And he says he will not hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. Listen, you're not going to win any friends that way. You're not. It's hard. It probably uh, won't win any popularity contest. It'll probably call you weird, prudish, um, bizarre, radical. That's a word that we're hearing today. Out of touch. Yet whose honor really matters? Of course, there's all kinds of other scenarios. David has defeated the enemy of his people. He had to do it, didn't he? He had to, because the enemy mocked Israel's God. The honor of Jehovah must be upheld. And if the honor of Jehovah is going to be upheld, the enemy must be silenced. It was true of David's greater son, who in the cross and the resurrection, those glory robbers, sin and death, were dealt a mortal blow so that God would be just in dealing with sin and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Well, what a great theme to begin a new year, right? What a perfect time to resolve, if you want a resolution, here it is, to resolve to defend the honor and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me? All right. Father, thank You for this... uh, this perfect treasure of instruction. And I pray, Lord, that I haven't messed it up, but simply presented it as it is, the teaching that's there. Lord, help us, we pray, in those hard moments in life when Your name is being challenged, when Your character, God, is being called into question. Lord, help us to speak. Yes, to be wise, to be kind when we can, but Lord, to be to be clear. Your, your name, your, your honor is what's the most valuable. And Lord, we know that if we do that, there are going to be people who don't like it. But I, I pray that, Father, you'd help us to be strong. Not, not, not doing it in, in some selfish way or some high-minded, super, super self-righteous way, but in a way, God, that brings the greatest glory and honor to your name. Lord, that's really all that matters at the end of the day. Um, help us, Lord, to, to live for the name above all names the name by which all men must be saved, the name and fame of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. In His name we ask. Amen.